Domine Patris, Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other who will fight for us save but you, our God. Welcome to the Memento Tradiciones podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Brian, and you are listening to the second episode of this podcast. This week, I will be going over Father Ripperger's book, The Binding Force of Tradition, which you can find at censustradiciones.org. I will put a link to that in the show notes. So if you enjoy what I cover this week, make sure to check out uh, that website. Consider buying this book, The Binding Force of of Tradition, by Father Chad Ripperger, or consider uh, making a donation to his apostolate. What I will be doing in this episode is reading some excerpts from The Binding Force of Tradition and giving a little summary of different portions of this book and uh, perhaps some of my own thoughts. For the most part, I just wanted to read from the book itself. Um, I'm not going to read the entire thing, which I would recommend. It's uh, not too long. Let me see here. It's 54 pages, so it's pretty short. But I think it gets to the point. And what I would like to do here is just focus on some of the most important parts, um, which it's pretty concise to be already, so I don't know how much more I can simplify it. But I think the idea I want to get at here is what is tradition, What? why is it important, and how does it uh, fall into our understanding of the Catholic faith? So with that being said, I will start with a portion here from the very beginning of chapter 1, which is called the Rule of Faith. When the word tradition is brought up in the context of the theological discussion, one receives three different kinds of reactions in relationship to the word or concept. The first is a simple dismissal in the sense that tradition does not bind in any way based upon the assertion that theological notions are constantly changing. Since they are always changing, newer is always better, and the tradition has no binding force on the level of moral obligation because it is not newer. Broadly, we may label this the liberal position. The second is in connection to what is called notional assent. Notional assent is an intellectual judgment that a particular proposition is true, but in the practical living of a person's life, it is not followed. This is seen when the magisterium promulgates that the tradition is part of divine revelation even after Vatican II, but will promulgate documents that have no connection or reference to any document on the same subject prior to the Second Vatican Council. Even certain neoconservatives, or what are sometimes called neo-Catholics, suffer from this. The third is based on what is called real assent. Real assent is an intellectual judgment that a particular proposition is true and the person leads his life according to it. Those Catholics who follow the Orthodox traditional teaching as manifested in the fathers and doctors of the Church fall into this category insofar as they hold to the actual value and binding force of the tradition and lead their life according to it as well. So what we can see here in the book is Father Ripperger distinguishing three approaches or ways or reactions that people might have to tradition. 
So the first is the liberal position that tradition doesn't really matter because what's newer is always better. And so we should follow the newest and latest and greatest. Uh, I think we can all recognize that that is not appropriate and not the way that we should approach the Catholic faith. I'm sure there's uh, many people who, and probably in smaller numbers today, more among the older crowd, although certainly some younger ones that I've encountered as well, uh, more more particularly online, I think you see this in the, what is known as the so-called Tradinista, um, which is a very strange uh, combination of someone who likes the traditional Latin mass, for example, but also is a uh, socialist. Um, I don't think you run into too many of these people, and I can't really say that I know of any of them. Uh, I know one person, but uh, they don't live here where I live, and uh, I don't really know them that well. But uh, supposedly these types of people are more prominent in places like uh, uh, Seattle or Portland or somewhere on the West Coast, although I'm sure you can find some in New York and, and other uh, liberal places as well. So that's the liberal position that tends to be pretty common among uh Liberals, from what I've seen, is okay. This is, uh, we have a new teaching here in the church, and uh, the newest is the best because, it, you know, it's the most enlightened, or however you want to look at it. So that's the liberal approach to tradition is uh, tradition doesn't really matter. Liberal or new is what matters. New is the uh, most enlightened version of understanding of the truth. The second that uh, Father Ripperger mentions here is the notional ascent. So you recognize that something is true, um, but it's not really practical for someone to live that way. And so it's it's not really uh, something that we would follow today. Um, or it, it doesn't have any real connection to what was taught before Vatican II. And so, uh, like uh, Father Ripperger says, that's something that we see with uh, many neoconservatives. And uh, I think this is a very uh, common view. Maybe they wouldn't put it specifically this way, but I've heard people um, that I know pretty well, um, some good friends, some people that I look up to and respect have said these types of things. You know, they said, uh, I don't think they would put it exactly this way, but they might say, okay, well, you know, the church uh, was kind of triumphalist in the past. And now we are a little bit more humble and realize that, uh, you know, maybe we've gotten some things wrong about uh, our teachings and the history. And, uh, well, Vatican II came in and, and they kind of uh, humbled us in a way and, and brought us closer to uh, a, a more uh, openness to other people, to other uh, faiths, and, uh, you know, allowed us to sort things out in such a way that, uh, and, and frame things in such a way that it would be more appealing to people, modern people, uh, people of other faiths, uh, whoever it might be. You know, you don't want to scare people away. You have to meet them where they're at and uh, so on and so forth. Personally, I think there's, there's some truth in that, but uh, it can be, if you, uh, if you don't uh, stand by the truth and you, and you try to, or you try to, uh, craft it in such a way that is appealing to people, okay, yeah, that's good. But you can't change or or reject certain things or try to downplay other things because you think that uh, that might scare some away. 
Um, I don't know, maybe you do that in the beginning, but ultimately if you want someone to know the fullness of the truth, uh, you can't be afraid of teaching someone that because uh, isn't that what we're called to, is to pass on the traditions. So to recap here, we have the liberal position, which newer is better, tradition doesn't really matter. We have the neo-Catholic, the neo-conservative view that, yes, these things were true in the past. They still are true, but, uh, you know, it's not really practical to come out with these full force to, to, to um, you know, some people you know, just can't live up to them or, you know, maybe they can't handle them. And so we need to, you know, be nicer about it or, or whatnot. Um, and maybe that's the wrong way of putting it because I don't think... Uh, Again, I don't think people would f phrase it this way or maybe think about it this way, but that's kind of what they're doing. And then the third example is what uh, Father Ripperger calls the traditional Catholic, the, or I guess you might say the, the proper way of understanding tradition is that it's true and it should have an, imp in a impact on your life. Um, let me read this again here. So he calls this a real ascent. It's an intellectual judgment that a particular proposition is true and the person leads his life according to it. So we might say, for example, that marriage is primarily a vocation to be fruitful and multiply as the Lord commanded. And, you know, you should live your life if you're a married person and, and be open to life uh, with your spouse and really make sacrifices so that you can have a large family or the largest one that God wants to give you. Um, maybe that's probably something that I'll go into more detail in, in a future episode. But that be, might be something that the neo-Catholic looks at. It, okay, yeah, that's that's true. We should be open to life, but you know we need to be realistic about this. And you know some people they need to take time or whatever, so on and so forth. You know they often give different reasons that sound re reasonable. But uh, they aren't exactly following the tradition of the tr of the church. They're, you might say they're, and this is a word you might hear often, is they're being more pastoral, which uh, I think is an abused term that you'll often hear among, particularly among liberals, but uh, I think you'll hear it even among conservatives as well. It's kind of a way of saying, yeah, this is true, but uh, we need to, you know, meet people where they're at. We need to accompany them, uh, all these other buzzwords. So just to recap, we have these three understandings of tradition. The one is the liberal position, which is newer is always better. Tradition, you know, doesn't have any binding force. The neo-Catholic or the second position is, yes, this is true, but... We need to be practical about this and, you know, meet people where they're at. The third position is, this is true, and yes, it should affect the way we live. And I'm sure people in the second position would say that as well, but they would kind of, uh, they would, they would look to state it in such a way that it's, it's more appealing and more acceptable to modern uh, sensibilities and perhaps what they think is more realistic for modern people. So now going back to the book, the, as I said, chapter one is called The Rule of Faith. 
I believe I mentioned that. But if not, uh, this next section dives into the rule of faith. And I'll read uh, a little portion here about uh, what the rule of faith is. So Father Ripperger says, Anytime one is bound to do something morally, it is based upon a particular precept, or we may say regula, or rule, which we must follow. The question then becomes, what is this rule or standard which we must adhere to morally in relationship to the tradition? So the question he's pointing out here is, what is the rule of faith? So we, we think about the rule of faith as being that which determines what we must, must obey, how we must live our life, you know, what, what we're going to follow as the ultimate rule of how we should live as Catholics. So I'm going to skip ahead here, and uh, he gives a definition from the Old Catholic Encyclopedia of what the rule of faith is, and it says, The word rule, Latin regula, Greek canon, means a standard by which something can be tested. And the rule of faith means something extrinsic to our faith and serving as its norm or measure. And then Father Ripperger goes on to say, The rule of faith is the standard by which one tests what one believes to determine if what one believes is in fact true. St. Thomas tells us in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences that in every moderation it is necessary that that which is moderated is adequated to some rule or measure. A rule is something to which our knowledge is adequated. Of course, the term adequation is the foundational term in the definition of truth, adequatio intellectus et rei, adequation of intellect and thing. In the case of the rule of faith, our intellect must conform to the rule in order for our faith to be true. What is at root of the entire discussion is orthodoxy, since the term orthodoxy comes from the Greek terms orthos and doxis, which mean right belief. We believe rightly, i.e. we are orthodox, when our belief conforms to the rule of faith. St. Thomas often uses the term rule or measure in relation to actions as they conform to the law which is the rule. The phrase lex credendi, lex orandi, is sometimes translated as the rule of believing determines the rule of praying. By deduction, then, we see that the right kind of worship is determined by what we believe, i.e. ultimately the rule of faith. Establishing precisely what constitutes the rule of faith is important. So let me go back here and read this one portion because I think it's particularly important. Father Ripperger says, In the case of the rule of faith, our intellect must conform to the rule in order for our faith to be true. What is at the root of the entire discussion is orthodoxy, since the term orthodoxy comes from the Greek term orthos and doxis, which mean right belief. We believe rightly, i.e. we are orthodox, when our belief conforms to the rule of faith. So again, he says, going back to what I just read, in the case of the rule of faith, our intellect must conform to the rule in order for our faith to be true. So he's basically saying here that in order for our faith to be true, we must know 
you know, what we understand in our mind and our intellect must conform to the rule of faith. We must know the truth. You know, as the, uh, if I recall, the, the Baltimore Catechism says, you know, what, why are we here? What are we made for? And it's to know, know God, to love God, and to serve him in this life and in the next. And I remember a particular uh, sermon by Father Altman where he talks about, you know, how can we serve God if we don't love him? And how can we love God if we don't know him? You know, if, if we don't know God, if we don't know the rule of faith, then our faith can't be true. So it's important for us to learn what this rule of faith is, to know this rule of faith. So then the big question becomes, what is the rule of faith? So let me jump ahead in this chapter here, and we'll read about that. So in the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas Aquinas, we read, Measure is able to be taken in two ways in relation to theological virtue. One indeed is according to the very notion of the virtue, and so the measure and rule of theological virtue is God himself. For our faith is regulated according to the divine truth, charity according to his goodness, hope, moreover, according to the magnitude of his omnipotence and piety. And then Father Ripperger says, The first rule of faith above all others is God himself. And as God reveals himself, that knowledge becomes the divine truth to which we must adhere. Yet since we are trying to get to the rule of faith, we must first not only define rule as we have, but we must also define faith. Each virtue inclines us to act, and so the virtue of faith inclines us to act of assent, inclines us to the act of assent to which is believed, since to give assent is the act of faith. Assent is an act of the intellect in which the intellect sees or adheres to some proposition as true. So we may define faith as a virtue or habit residing in the possible intellect, the subject of the habit of virtue, by which one gives assent, an act of virtue, to those things revealed by God, the object of virtue, sometimes called the deposit of faith. This definition of faith does not differ in substance from the two definitions which St. Thomas gives of faith. The first is substantia sperandarum redum argumentum non apparentium, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. In this definition, faith refers to the things in which one must believe, i.e. those things revealed by God, and to this is given the phrase, the substance of things hoped for, for God and eternal beatitude are those things revealed and hoped for. The evidence, argumentum, of things not seen refers to two things. The first is to the faith which moves the intellect as if by argument, if you will, to see the truth of what is revealed. The second refers to things unseen, since eternal beatitude, God, etc., are things which are unseen. The other definition of faith given by St. Thomas is habitus mentis qua incoatur vita eterna in nobis faciens intellectum 
a sentire non apparentibus, a habit of mind by which eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect assent to things unseen. In this definition we find the same elements in the other definition, viz. faith is a virtue or habit in the intellect by which we give assent to things that are not apparent or unseen. But this definition also indicates that faith is the beginning of eternal life, since faith is necessary to order us to God in a sufficient manner, and since eternal beatitude consists in seeing God face to face, then faith is the beginning by which we start striving for perfect beatitude. Therefore, from the definition of rule and the definition of faith, we see that the rule of faith is God, i.e. the divine truth which God has revealed about himself. This definition of faith and rule determines the subsequent discussion of the other rules of faith. Since God is the rule of faith, then any other rule will simply be a rule of faith in relation to the first rule. So let me state that again. The rule of faith, the rule of faith, is God, i.e., the divine truth which God has revealed about himself. So since God is the rule of faith, then any other rule will simply be a rule of faith in relation to the first rule. So basically we're saying that, and I will go into this in a second, is that there are other secondary rules, I guess you could put it, that are rules of faith that point us to the, the ultimate rule of faith, which is God. So all of our, all of our faith rests in God. Um, you can think of it as the way they say in Mass, through him, with him, and in him. So our faith is in God, and uh, you know Christ gives us this faith as a gift. Uh, it's not something that we have merited. Um, you know, we, we cooperate with him. But this is the rule of faith. It's the faith that uh, we have been, gra- the grace that we've been given to have faith in God through him and with him and in him. And every other rule of faith comes back to this. So now, what are these other rules of faith? And I'm going to just give a uh, highlight of each of these that uh, Father Ripperger touches on, because there are several of them. So remember, we talked about the rule of faith as being God himself, or the divine truth which God has revealed about himself. And then we have these other rules of faith, which are a rule of faith in relation to the first rule, which is God himself. So... One of the other rules of faith that he gives is the theological virtue of faith. And Father Ripperger says, Since every habit is specified by its object, the virtue of faith has God or the revealed truth about God as its object. St. Thomas observes that a single heresy corrupts the virtue of faith. Hence, when one considers a proposition which is proposed to be believed, Then one knows whether that proposition is true or not, if it is the proper object of, or corrupts, the virtue of faith. And then he goes on to say, We know indirectly that we have the virtue of faith insofar as we know that we see the propositions, creedal statements, or symbols as true. But then he goes on to say, But but here again we have a problem. For someone can say he gives assent to the proposition, but he may not understand the same thing by that proposition as the church understands. For this reason, we are forced to seek a different rule 
by which we can know whether what we believe is true or not. So basically, the theological virtue of faith, which is certainly important and something that we, you know, anyone who believes and is orthodox in belief has, it ultimately cannot be the only sign uh, that we are following the rule of faith because, uh, as he just said here, someone might not actually understand what the church teaches and think that they believe it when they really don't. Now, I, I think that this is a good point to recall, and I think he'll get into this uh, later on here, that this is why it is very important for us to learn what the church teaches. And we will uh, discover how to do that, I think, as we look into these other uh, rules of faith. So the next one that comes up is revelation, or scripture and tradition as the rule. And Father Ripperger says, Revelation comes to us by means of scripture and unwritten traditions, or we may say, generically, tradition. John Henry Cardinal Newman asserted that scripture and tradition are a twofold rule of faith. Next, we go on to another rule of faith, which is doctrine taught by the apostles. And uh, Father Ripperger says, Tertullian, in his work De Prescriptione Hereticorum, says that the rule of faith consists in the tradition of the apostles by which the teaching of the apostles is passed on. He maintains that it is by the doctrine of the apostles that one knows that one, one holds, that, what, that what one holds to is true and all other doctrines are false. Thus, for the anti-Nicene fathers, rule of faith, rule of truth designate the doctrine taught by the church in accordance with what it received from the apostles. The next example Father Ripperger gives is the creed as rule of faith. Tertullian and Adversus Prexian recites what appears to be a creed and then notes that this is the rule of faith. St. Augustine says it explicitly, Receive, my children, the rule of faith, which is called the symbol. Uh, and I'll note here that he's referring to the uh, Nicene Creed, I believe, or perhaps the Apostles' Creed, but uh, symbol means creed. We also see uh, Father Ripperger references St. Thomas, writing in the Augustinian theological tradition, also affirms that the creed or symbols are the rule of faith. So just to recap real quick here, we have several rules of faith that uh, he's outlining. We have the virtue of faith as the rule. We have scripture and tradition as the rule. We have doctrine taught by the apostles as the rule. We have the creed as the rule. Uh, let's keep going. So he mentions sola scriptura as the rule of faith. And Father Ripperger says, It is commonly known that among some of the Protestants, Scripture alone is the rule. This position, with some nuancing, has become the position of some modern theologians. Karl Rahner held that, for a theology, Scripture is practically the only material source of faith to which it must refer as to the source clearly original, not derived as norma non nomata. Elsewhere, he asserts, the Second Vatican Council refused to make tradition a second source for us today, which exists by itself alongside Scripture, a source 
which testifies to individual material contents of faith, which have no foundation at all in Scripture. However, much the more precise relationship between Scripture and tradition still needs a great deal of further theological clarification. It is perhaps obvious from what has already been said earlier that Scripture alone of the Reformation, the Scripture alone of the Reformation, is no longer a doctrine which distinguishes and separates the churches. So uh, <laughs> that is a pretty crazy statement from a supposed Catholic theologian. And Father Ripperger cites him here because we can see that this is a um, this is someone who has had some influence on the Second, Second Vatican Council. I don't know how strong of an influence it was, but we have this Catholic theologian who's saying that well, perhaps we need to take some uh, notes from the Protestants and consider sola scriptura as the uh, you know above tradition. He's, he's saying that the Second Vatican Council refused to make tradition a second source for us today. Um, you know, which seems to be saying that he thinks that Scripture is above tradition, which is. Um, is unthinkable for a Catholic to even say such a thing. But I, I think we can see here that even maybe some Catholics we know that think that Scripture is, you know, sh that should be our primary source. Um, and certainly Scripture is extremely important, as St. Jerome says, uh, ignorance of Scripture is, is ignorance of Christ. But can it be the rule of faith? Um, I don't think we can follow Karl Rahner in this uh, understanding of the rule of faith. Even the Second Vatican Council, in the document Dei Verbum, says, she, the Church, has always maintained them, Scripture, and continues to do so together with sacred tradition as the supreme rule of faith. So we cannot... So, um, just looking at this statement from the Second Vatican Council... We, the church has always maintained that scripture and sacred tradition must be considered together as the rule of faith. We cannot consider scripture to be above tradition. In fact, it, many would say that scripture is part of tradition because that's where that's where scripture comes from. Is the tradition the what the apostles uh, passed on to us? I think this section is important, so I'm going to focus a little bit more on it here. He uh, quotes another. Uh, Catholic theologian. I believe this man is a uh, was a Dominican, and he also had some influence on the Second Vatican Council. His name is uh, Yves Congar, and he says, The Holy Scriptures have an absolute value that tradition has not, which is why, without being the absolute rule of every other norm, like the Protestant scriptural principle, they are the supreme guide which any others there may be are subjected. And Father Ripperger goes on to say, this statement, as we shall see, is hard to maintain when theological analysis is given to doctrines not contained in Scripture, which, which are necessary for salvation. Moreover, it is hard to maintain when one considers that ultimately the role is God, and Scripture is a means of transmission of the deposit, not the deposit itself, and therefore the deposit of faith would take precedence even over Scripture. Yet, Congar's thesis that scripture is at least the negative norm of all interpretation and transmission, is true, not as the norm, but as a norm. No theological proposition or doctrine can be considered true if it contradicts scripture 
as understood by the church. It is not merely a matter of whether something we think denies some passage in Scripture, but whether it actually denies what the church understands that particular passage to contain. This would require a magisterium which would be assisted by the Holy Spirit in knowing the meaning of the passage and not merely leaving it to private interpretation. In this respect, we concur with Cardinal Below that Scripture can be a remote rule. So just to review this section, we're considering sola scriptura as the rule of faith, which we know is a Protestant doctrine and is false. But we do have some modern Catholic theologians who did have some influence at the Second Vatican Council and even among many today that have suggested that Scripture should be the rule of faith or perhaps very close to that understanding. And as we can tell here, and I hope we all know, that is not true. It is certainly something that we reverence and something that you know, the rule of faith cannot contradict because it is a remote rule of faith. But all the more, um, we need a magisterium to interpret this scripture. We need, uh, we need to go by the traditional understanding of how scripture is interpreted. And therefore, that is why it cannot be the ultimate rule of faith. Because you know, it's not up to a particular person's interpretation. There is another rule that is above that, which uh, we will get to shortly here. So why scripture is not the rule of faith? Um, just to hit on this even more, Father Ripperger uh, quotes the Secunda Secunde of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, from the Summa Theologiae that uh, quote, the truth of the faith is diffusely and in various modes contained in sacred scripture, and in certain cases obscurely, so that long study and training is required to elicit the truth of the faith from sacred scripture, to which not are all are able to come to that which is necessary to know the truth of faith, in which they do not have the leisure to study, being busy with other affairs. And therefore, it was necessary that from the passages of sacred scripture, some manifest summary would be gathered together, which would be proposed to all to be believed, which indeed is not added to sacred scripture, but rather is taken from sacred scripture. So as we can see, sacred scripture has a very high place in our understanding of the faith, but it requires a certain training and uh, study and something that you know, most lay people are not going to be able to do. And again, it requires the magisterium to interpret. So as he says, uh, I think this is the key word here from St. Thomas Aquinas, the truth of the faith is diffusely and in various modes contained in sacred scripture. So it's contained in it, but it's not the rule of faith. It's contained in scripture. But again, scripture is not the rule of faith. Father Ripperger also notes that Scripture does not contain everything necessary for salvation. He says, Scripture cannot be the rule because it does not contain everything necessary for salvation. Even Congar treats of the doctrine not, doctrines not contained within Scripture. These doctrines, which historically have not been considered to be contained in Scripture, are, among others, the following. The Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Validity of Baptism for, of Heretics, Offering of a chalice of wine mixed with water is a usage followed by our Lord. 
infant baptism, devotion to images, those things essential to some of the sacraments, such as confirmation, holy orders, and extreme unction, the virginity of Mary postpartum, the consecration of virgins, prohibition of marriage after a vow of virginity, the reception of Holy Communion from priests by the laity while the priests communicate themselves, and offering Holy Mass not only for the living but for the dead. Given the absence of these doctrines, Scripture cannot be the rule of faith, since it lacks teachings which are necessary for salvation. And now we get to tradition as the rule of faith. Father Ripperger says, Below, uh, referring to Cardinal Below, asserts that tradition is the rule of faith. This would appear to fit what is known as the Vincentian Canon. St. Vincent of Lorenz, in his work Comunitorium, written in 437 AD, provides the following principle in order to constitute the rule of faith. In the Catholic Church itself, great care must be taken that we hold that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. For this is truly and properly Catholic, which, as the force and notion of the name declares, almost all universally comprehend. But this at last becomes consent, if we follow the universal antiquity. Moreover, we follow universality in this way, if we confess that one true faith, which the whole church throughout the world confesses. Such is it that with antiquity, if from those senses we in no way depart from what is manifest by our holy ancestors and fathers celebrated. So also it is the same with consent. If we adhere to the definitions and beliefs of all or almost all priests and doctors in that same antiquity, St. Vincent essentially establishes that the principle of judgment about what we are to believe is that which we have received from our holy ancestors and fathers. In effect, it is tradition, i.e. that which has been handed on to us, which constitutes what we are to believe. For there is no aspect of what we believe as Catholics that was not passed on to us from those who went before us. And St. Vincent again says, for that holy and prudent man knew that to admit the notion of piety is nothing other than everything is received from faith from the fathers and consigned by the same faith to the sons. And piety is not our religion, which we want, that leads, but more, that which leads must be followed. For it is proper to Christian modesty and gravity not to pass on his own beliefs to those who come after him, but to preserve what has been received from his ancestors. What then was the issue of the whole matter? What but the usual and customary one? Antiquity was retained. Novelty was rejected. Tradition, therefore, would be the rule. Now we come to the magisterium, as Father Ripperger mentions the magisterium as the rule of faith. Yet modern authors are quick to point out that even when discussing the notion that tradition is the rule, tradition involves the official organ of, the, of tradition, which is the magisterium. Therefore, tradition by its very nature implies a magisterium. Some of the strongest statements in support of the proposition that the magisterium is the rule of faith come from the magisterium itself. The Holy Office has observed that the Church 
has always given and proposed its dogmatic definitions as the certain and immutable rule of faith. This line is very important to sort out. First, by church, they are merely referring to the magisterium. Second, it is not the magisterium as such that is the rule, but the definitions of the magisterium that are the rule. This avoids a certain intellectual confusion insofar as the office itself is not the rule, but what the office teaches is the rule. If this is kept in mind, nothing prohibits one from referring to the magisterium as the rule, as long as one understands by that what the magisterium teaches. St. Thomas observes that it pertains to the Pope to say what is of the faith and determine new editions of the symbols, or creed. He also notes that the synods or councils bind because the Pope calls and confirms the propositions. Clearly, if the Pope does not sign or confirm the decrees of a council, they are not infallible. He also observes that the Pope can say which propositions of others, such as St. Athanasius, the Patristics, or the Theologians, are of the faith. But he calls these propositions the quasi-rule of faith because they rest upon the authority of the Pope or Magisterium. This is echoed in Pope Pius IX's Tuas Libenter, when he says that we are to hold those teachings as pertaining to the faith, not only the decrees of the councils, but the universal and constant consensus of the Catholic, Catholic theologians. Next, we consider the current magisterium as the rule of faith. Below observes that the proximate and immediate rule of faith is the infallible and ever-living magisterium of the Catholic Church. The notion of the living magisterium asserts that the magisterium will always be present in the Church, passing on the tradition. It is living because in each generation there are living members of the magisterium who teach and preach the depositive faith. Therefore, each generation is bound to the current or living magisterium. Sometimes this is called the magisterium quotidianum, insofar as it is the magisterium that is alive today. Next, we consider the prior magisterium as, as the rule. Yet, we may also say that the definitions of the prior magisterium are a rule. By this, we do not mean to divide the magisterium into two parts, but to indicate that the members of the magisterium in a certain period of history pass judgments on a particular article of faith. That judgment or definition then passes into the tradition and becomes as if a proper accident of the tradition. While it is not the deposit itself, it does not constitute the proper understanding of that particular aspect of the deposit and therefore binds later generations as a rule regarding that particular teaching. I think this is something that we should focus on uh, right here. So let me read this again. That judgment or definition that passes into the tradition and becomes as if prop a proper accident of the tradition. So he's saying past judgments of the magisterium become a proper accident of the tradition. And by accident, he means here, it's a very uh, technical philosophical term that means uh, kind of a characteristic or attribute of the tradition. So it's part of the tradition. So these judgments of the prior magisterium are become part of the tradition. And then he goes on to say, while it's not the deposit itself, it does constitute the proper understanding of that particular aspect of the deposit and therefore binds later generations as a rule regarding that particular teaching. So this part is, is very important for our understanding of what tradition is and why we should hold to it. And uh, so we're talking of prior teachings of the magisterium. And he says, 
it binds later generations. So just keep that in mind. Prior teachings of the magisterium, prior magisteriums, bind later generations as a rule. Then he goes on to say, the magisterium is not the rule. From the aforesaid regarding God being the rule, we see that the magisterium, whether current or prior, is not the rule of faith, since it is a secondary rule in relation to God, who is the primary rule. Kangar is correct when he says the rule of faith is the truth given and transmitted, which the pastors only guard, without their magisterium itself being either considered or qualified as a rule of faith. Here Kangar does not mean to assert that in no way is the magisterium a rule of faith, since elsewhere he asserts that it is. What he is indicating is that it is the teaching which is passed on to which we must conform, not the magisterium except insofar as it defines and teaches that doctrine. In this sense, the magisterium is a rule, since we must conform to its teaching, which is none other than the teaching of God about himself, i.e. revelation. So again, the magisterium is not the rule. Now, we should honor the popes, the, the councils, and all those things as being uh, very worthy of, of considering that uh, they are passing on what is the truth of tradition. But ultimately, even they are bound by tradition. So they are not the ultimate rule. They, they help guard the tradition and pass it on. But again, going back to what he said earlier, uh, quoting St. Vincent de Lorenz, if that's his name. Yes, St. Vincent de Lorenz. He says, Antiquity should be retained, novelty rejected. So anything that we pass on through tradition, you know, it has to be you know, what was passed on from the apostles. And uh, anything that's new, that's not of the apostles, that contradicts the apostles, should not be passed on. Another thing to consider is the census fidelium as the rule of faith. And here we read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, The whole of the faithful cannot err, and the whole people manifest this particular property, meditating the supernatural census fidei, when, from the bishops to the last of the lay faithful, it exhibits its universal consent of things pertaining to faith and morals. And Father Ripperger says, When the whole of the faithful consent to a particular doctrine, it is to be considered as pertaining to the faith. In this respect, it would be a rule of faith in relation to the specific doctrine in question. Now this uh, brings up a personal question. I don't know if I have an answer to this, so maybe it's not really helpful to ask this question. But I notice here that it says the whole of the faithful. So the question might be, well, what about those that are in the church that are not faithful, that don't hold to these things? Do I don't think they're considered part of this faithful. So that's just something to consider here, is perhaps we're talking about going back to the Virtue of faith is the rule of faith. Perhaps this is just a way of saying whoever has the virtue of faith, you know, they will all hold to the true faith. So here we've gone through all the 
possible considerations for the rule of faith. And um, I think Father Ripperger will summarize it here in a, in, a, in a second here, but let me just recap all of the ones that we've covered. So ultimately, we have God as the rule of faith, and any other rule of faith points to him. So we cannot understand anything as being the rule of faith until we consider and know that God is the ultimate rule of faith. But we do have some other rules of faith. We have the theological virtue of faith as the rule of faith, as a rule of faith. Revelation, which includes scripture and tradition, as a rule of faith. Doctrine taught by the apostles as a rule of faith. The creed as a rule of faith. Um, let's see, what else do we have? We also have tradition. So we're talking about scripture and tradition as rules of faith. And then we have the magisterium, the current magisterium, the prior magisterium as the rule of faith or as rules of faith. So we've considered all of these rules of faith. And now Father Ripperger is going to make some distinctions here. He says, To begin sorting out the rule of faith, we can look at two distinctions that have been proposed in this area of discussion. The first is a distinction made between what is known as the object of faith and the rule of faith. Cardinal Below makes this distinction by observing that the object is the truth to be believed, and the rule formally considered is that which contains the truth to be believed and to which we must conform in believing. Hence, the object to be believed is the truth passed on by tradition, and the rule is the tradition which contains and passes on that object. Let me say this again. The object to be believed is the truth passed on by tradition, and the rule is the tradition which contains and passes on that object. This tradition occurs in the preaching of the church, or more specifically, the magisterium, which is the official organ of tradition. By the object of faith, cardinal below means that which is contained in tradition and scripture, or we may say broadly, tradition in the broadest sense, as including all of those things which are passed on in any way which would include scripture and tradition in the more restrictive sense. The second distinction, which uh, I'm going to summarize here, is between what is called the proximate and remote rule of faith. And here, uh, Father Ripperger quotes a man by the name of Franzlin, who says that scripture and tradition is the remote rule of faith, and the church, or the living magisterium of the church, is the proximate rule of faith. And by tradition, he means to include all of the other aspects of tradition which are not essential to the deposit of faith but are passed on with it, such as the teachings of the patristics, theologians, judgments of the magisterium, as well as all of those things contained under the notion of monuments and documents. And then Father Ripperker goes on to say, If one takes the tradition as indicated by Franzlin in this passage and scripture together, then one is left with the prior distinction of tradition in the broad sense of all those things passed on in some way. And skipping ahead a bit here, Father Ripperger says, Considering all that we have said up to now, we are left with the conclusion that all of the rules of faith aforementioned come together in a single, coherent rule of faith. 
since God reveals himself, and this is the primary rule, the primary rule is expressed and passed on by the secondary rule, which is the active tradition, to use Franzlin's term. The active tradition possesses a unity of two aspects. The first is what is called what was called the proximate rule of faith, which is the current living magisterium. But the current and living magisterium passes to us the object, the tradition, taken in the broad sense, i.e. scripture and tradition in the most restrictive sense. But in, but in the tradition, in the more restrictive sense, we understand that it, this includes the definitions and teachings of the prior magisterium, which would include the formulation of revelation and the symbols or creeds, as well as the deposit of faith, i.e. those things necessary for salvation. It would also include all the other monuments which have the current magisterium as their guard and as their promoter. The theological virtue of faith then would be seen as the rule insofar as the proper object of the virtue of faith is the act of tradition, i.e. the teaching of the current magisterium, with the tradition taken in the broad sense, the remote rule, scripture and tradition including all of the monuments and documents. The theological virtue of faith as a rule only indicates that it is corrupted, increased or fulfilled when it deviates from or adheres to the external rule, which is the actor tradition in the sense understood by Franzlin. Lastly, the sensus fidelium is nothing other than the action of the Holy Spirit through the collective inclination of the theological virtue of faith as it resides in each of the individuals possessing the theological virtue. Since the theological virtue is one, is one as to its species, then all the faithful would be inclined to adhere to revelation, i.e. the object of faith as proposed by the magisterium. So let me just unpack this a little bit here. If you recall, we gave a number of rules of faith, with God being the ultimate rule of faith. Now we have the theological virtue of faith, as uh, Father Ripperger just said, would only be the theological virtue if it adheres to what the magisterium teaches, and that would only be as it passes on the tradition, uh, scripture and tradition, uh, scripture and the interpretation of it, and the other monuments and documents of tradition. So we can see here that every rule of faith that was given with God being the ultimate rule of faith, must go through tradition. If you have the virtue of faith, it means you follow the tradition. If the magisterium is the rule of faith, it means it passes on the tradition. So tradition is, for us, the, the ultimate rule of faith, that uh, we can know that we are knowing God. Because we come back to the, for example, the Baltimore Catechism. You know, and as uh, Father Altman said, you can't serve God unless you love Him, and you can't love God unless you know Him. Well, how do we know Him? We know Him by the rule of faith, which is the tradition that is passed on from the apostles in the creeds, in Scripture, in tradition, all the monuments and documents that have passed on that are protected and passed on by the magisterium. So tradition is the ultimate rule of faith for us, which leads us to God and is protected by the church. So this might bring up a question. What happens when there's deviation from the rule of faith? And Father Ripperger says, Yet in order to understand the rule of faith better, we need to consider a very difficult question, 
What happens when a particular member of the magisterium, including the Pope, is discordant or deviates from the remote rule? When Vatican I was formulating the doctrine of papal infallibility, it had to deal with several historical cases in which popes had taught things that were erroneous or heretical. Among other cases, Martin I, along with the Third Council of Constantinople, condemned the monothelitism of Pope Honorius I. Also, there is the example of the condemnation of Nicholas I, who held that aside from the Trinitarian formula, one could simply baptize in the in nomine Christi. Sometimes popes disagree on particular issues, such as was the case of Celestinos III and Innocent III, who disagreed over issues pertaining to the Pauline privilege. The historical reality of papal error and heresy forces us to consider what is the rule of faith for someone living under members of the magisterium that are teaching error or heresy. Since normally the rule of faith is the teaching of tradition and scripture as taught by the magisterium, what does one do when the members of the magisterium lapse into heresy? Normally, we say that one is orthodox as long as one does not dissent from the teachings of the magisterium, the proximate rule. Yet this begs the question, since historically there have been members of the magisterium who have lapsed into heresy and error. In his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences, St. Thomas observes that, As a man ought to obey an inferior power and only those things which are not repugnant to a superior power, so also man ought to conform himself to the primary rule according to his mode. Man ought to conform himself to the secondary rule in those things which are not discordant from the primary rule. That in, w- that in which it is discordant is no longer a rule, and because of this he ought not to assent to a prelate preaching contrary to the faith, since it is discordant with the primary rule. This is merely a more formal formulation of the scriptural dictum, We ought to obey God rather than men. Let me say this again, because I think this part is very important. We ought to obey God rather than men. And Father Riberger goes on to say, But what is of importance if that the secondary rule only remains a rule as long as it is commensurate with the primary rule, which is, of course, God? Therefore, in the consideration of the rule of faith, the distinction between the proximate and the remote rule is of prime importance. We do not have a direct contact with God, who is the primary rule. Therefore, if the proximate rule lapses, logically we are forced to fall back upon the remote rule, since a. it contains the judgments and teachings of the prior magisterium, which are commensurate with the primary rule, and b. it contains the deposit of faith, i.e. the revealed knowledge which God passed on to the apostles. So basically what he's saying here is that if, for example, someone of the magisterium teaches something that is contrary to the tradition, you know, we must obey God rather than men. And what do we do here, you know, if the magisterium, because they're a rule of faith, what do we do here when they do not follow the tradition? Because, you know, the, the guardians of the tradition, they are tasked with passing on the tradition, but what if they don't do that? Well, then we must go to the another rule of faith, which can show us the what is the truth that leads us to God, and that is the tradition. And so when the magisterium 
is uh, if someone of the magisterium is teaching the wrong thing, then we cannot follow that. We have to uh, not follow that. We have to hold to the traditions which were passed on. And that makes me think of, uh, I forget exactly what uh, book it's from, but there's a section in the Bible where I believe it's Paul who says, if someone passes on to you a different gospel than what I have preached, you know, whether it be an angel, whether it be me or, or whoever it is, you know, don't listen to them. And, you know, we have to hold to the tradition. So no matter who it is, maybe it's someone we respect or should respect, we, we can't listen to someone when they lead us astray, when we know that it's wrong. But this brings up another point that is a big challenge here and, and a cause for much struggle. Because uh, Father Ripperger goes on to say here, Yet, St. Thomas also says that human knowledge is not the rule of faith. And this denies two propositions. The first is the proposition of the modernists that the rule of faith is imminent, i.e. within ourselves, and so we judge what we are to believe based on upon our own personal experience. The second is that it does not allow us to stand in judgment of the magisterium, as if we were to become the new proximate rule. On the other hand, St. Thomas goes on to say that ignorance of the primary rule does not suffice, and so we are not allowed to simply follow a member of the magisterium blindly or ignorantly. We are bound to know those things necessary for salvation which are contained in Scripture and tradition. Therefore, since tradition also contains the teaching definitions of the magisterium, we are able to rest upon the prior magisterial judgments in matters which are necessary for salvation. In other words, if a magisterial member teaches us something which is clearly contrary to the tradition of the church, the remote rule, we are to ignore that particular teaching and pray for him. People tend to do this instinctively, i.e. as part of the census fidelium, to reject a teaching that is manifestly contrary to the remote rule. For example, we have often heard a bishop say that of the issue of women's ordination is still open to discussion, whereas Pope John Paul II manifested in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis that the teaching that women cannot be priests is irreformable by virtue of the ordinary infallible magisterium. When we hear bishops saying that it is still open to discussion, we must fall back on the remote rule, which is the teaching of Pope John Paul II and the entire tradition regarding the matter. So he stated something here early on, and uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to all of this, um, this section here, perhaps even this entire podcast again. But we have to remember that our own knowledge is not the rule of faith, because isn't that what the Protestants did? Isn't that what the modernists, um, the examples we gave earlier, who were either supporting Sola Scriptura or something close to it, were suggesting? We cannot claim to know, um, well, we can know by going back to the, primer, the prior magisterium and the tradition of the church what is true. But we cannot stand in judgment of the magisterium. We might know if they are, if someone that is a part of the magisterium is teaching something contrary to, to, to tradition, but we have to remember that it is not us to stand in judgment of that because if we do that, we just become like the Protestants. And so we have to walk this very fine line here where we hold to the tradition while at the same time not uh, denying the importance of the magisterium and uh, respecting the position that they hold because it is something that we must hold 
<laughs> that's part of the tradition. So we, we have to hold that. And I think that's something that you often hear people claim of tradition, traditionalists doing. And perhaps some tradition, some traditionalists do that. You know, we can't pick and choose what we want to believe. Um, and some people claim that traditionalists do that. Um, I think that in many cases they're wrong. If we are holding to what the prior magisterium taught, um, we must understand what the current magisterium is teaching in light of the prior magisterium, in light of the, the tradition as handed on. And so we should know what the tradition is. We should know what is, has been handed on to us. And maybe that means going back and reading old documents or old books, but that's what we're going to have to do. And that's what I'm going to do on this podcast. So that's just something to keep in mind and something that I am constantly reflecting on is I don't want to be the ones deciding what to believe about tradition. We have to look to what has been handed on and be very careful about that and not assume with pride that we know better than whoever it is. Maybe there's a leader who is erring, maybe someone teaching something contrary to the tradition, but like Father Ripperger says, we need to pray for that person and you know, respect their office even if the person that is in it is uh, teaching something that's manifestly wrong. So here's something that is extremely important that I think a lot of conservatives do not get. Father Ripperger goes on to say, St. Thomas also indicates that the living magisterium of the church is bound to the deposit of faith and the prior magisterial definitions and teachings which are considered of the faith. You know, this is something that I was actually debating with someone uh, that uh, I'm sure my friends know. They may have seen this person say this, or several people say this um, in a group chat that I'm a part of, basically saying that the Pope cannot be bound to prior magisterial definitions and teachings well, that's exactly what St. Thomas Aquinas is saying, that he must be bound. Let me read this again. St. Thomas Aquinas, um, and this is the words of uh, Father Ripperger, St. Thomas Aquinas also indicates that the living magisterium of the church is bound to the deposit of faith and the prior magisterial definitions and teachings which are considered of the faith, de fide. So this is something we need to keep in mind when talking with conservatives or whoever it is, liberals, whoever it might be, any any pope, any bishop is bound by the prior, by the deposit of faith, by the prior magisterial definitions and teachings. So if they are contradicting anything that has been passed on, unless we know for sure that you know there have been popes in the past that have said something heretical, that it was clearly shown to be heretical, and and um, perhaps we will see that again someday in the future that um, some popes that we have had in this current period. May have said some things heretical that have been that might be condemned. Um, I, I can't say much about that, but uh, I'm sure you can uh, leave that up to your imagination. But I guess my point here is that any pope is is like he's saying here is bound by the prior magisterial definitions and teachings, and so anything that we understand from any pope must be in line with what the church has taught, what prior popes have taught, what prior 
councils have taught. If it's not, then there's something going on here that's very wrong. Father Ripperger goes on to say, here we begin to see the limits of the magisterium, i.e. that they are bound to the deposit and are not free to found a new faith or sacraments or teach something contrary to the faith. In fact, during the First Vatican Council, Archbishop Salas observed that the power of the Pope is limited by the natural and divine laws, the precepts of Christ, the good of the Church, right reason, and the rule of faith and morals. Essentially, this means that the Pope and the Magisterium are bound to the remote rule, and their offices are inextricably connected to, for the promotion of and the protection of the remote rule of faith. We must agree with Conger that, for the Council of Trent traditions, we may say the remote rule, constitute a norm for the magisterium itself. In the use of Thomistic and later scholastic Emmanuel's language, Conger says that it, the church or magisterium, is regula regulans et regulata, whereas objective tradition is purely regula regulans, fidem ecclesiae. Hence, even though the magisterium is a rule, it is ruled, or we may say regulated, by the tradition. So I think we can stop here, and uh, we have a couple more chapters left in this book. But that's something that we need to consider, most of all, and that's something that many conservatives, certainly liberals, but conservatives do not recognize. The magisterium is bound by the tradition, by the definitions and teachings of the prior magisterium. Or again, as St. Vincent of Lorenz said in the 5th century, the holy and prudent man did not pass on his own beliefs to those who come after him, but preserved what has been received from his ancestors. What What then was the issue of the whole matter? What but the usual and customary one? Antiquity was retained. Novelty was rejected. This is something that we need to keep in mind as we fight to uphold tradition in the modern day. We must pass on what has been passed on to us, the tradition. We must uphold the tradition We must reject anything that contradicts the tradition. And so for that reason, we have to understand what the tradition is. And that's what I hope to do in this podcast. I plan to read many different encyclicals, writings from the councils, from different saints, to try to show you what the traditional teachings of the church are. Because... As you may find out and see, and perhaps you don't know, but I think as we go through this podcast, you'll see more and more. Many conservatives, or as Father Ruberger calls them, neo-Catholics, they think that the magisterium is the rule of faith. I'm sure you might find some traditionalists that think that as well. In fact, I think you'll find many liberals that think that as well. They think that what the Pope teaches, we must follow Absolutely, even if it re- it contradicts prior tra- tradition. But as we see here, and as the title of his book, The Binding Force of Tradition, points out, we have to hold to the traditions that were passed on to us. So whether it's a priest or a bishop or even the Pope himself who teaches something that is contrary to the tradition, 
We must reject it. We must obey God rather than men. So let us pray for our church in these difficult times. Let us pray for our priests, for our bishops, for the Pope, for the faithful who are confused, and for all of us who hold to tradition or want to hold to tradition, want to learn what the tradition of the church is, that we may walk the narrow way that is very difficult, that we may be willing to suffer and sacrifice and merit graces for others who do not see these things so that our holiness will bring us closer to God, bring us to back to tradition and bring many others along with us. Let's pray for this, brothers and sisters. Let's pray for our church in these difficult and trying times. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. No.